And you can live in the day. How are you doing, Judith? I'm doing all right, actually. Yeah, I'm busy. Uh, just with so many, <laughs> so many things. Got the obviously the radio show. Yours was live this week. Did you notice radio? Yeah, uh, I saw 12 p.m. I don't understand how your radio show airs episodes. It looks like it plays my episode or the week's episode or something periodically throughout the day, or no? Yeah, each show has a different time period. So whether we're going to just do one show a week at one time, in the launch week, they did it multiple times and that worked really well. So he's decided to to do that so that, so for a week, it will be on maybe five or six times in different time shows. And how did you end up getting into the, the radio show biz? It's, a, it's, it's in the US as well? It's not in the UK. No, it's a US station. <laughs> so what's that all about? Well, um, a guy that I I know, he came on my podcast and we talked, oh, I came on his podcast, talked about Maverick Leadership. And then about two weeks later, he says, do you want to have your own radio show? And I was like, mm, yeah. <laughs> and then he said, oh, I know a guy. So I spoke to that guy and he said, you come highly recommended. Um, are you interested? And I said, I am. So that's what happened. Wow. <laughs> Every time we get together, we talk about leadership. <laughs> I, uh, I've been on your, well, we've had two conversations so far over the course of a year or so. Or no, was it two years ago? Because I, I was in Denver when we first spoke. And yeah, yeah, because the magazine is two years old and you was on the podcast before the magazine. that yeah before the magazine that's so we right. must have known each other for about two and a half years yeah maybe. yeah that's right it's crazy and um you live and eat and breathe and sleep leadership specifically maverick leadership but right, yeah so, that's my biggest passion so help us out there and the listeners what is what is the difference here with leadership and maverick leadership Okay, it's a really good question, actually. Um, so leadership tends to be studied as a set of techniques. Often it is based in the environment and the time span. So you can tell a leader, when, when, he, when he learned his leadership stuff, you can tell the year because of the style that they're using like situational leadership <laughs> is based on a certain thing that is yeah. fascinating <laughs> it's true it's that leadership generally fits a time period whereas maverick leadership is a philosophy and it's a way of looking at who you are and what you do so it so it doesn't need to change in the same way as something that's static. So whether you're in an environment that is constant, it works. Whether it's a static environment, it works. So it looks about who you are and how do you apply who you are to what you do. And maverick leaderships around those that work for the greater good are principled. Um, they will strategize, innovate, and execute to get things done. That makes so much sense. And as you said that, I was like reviewing all of the leaders that I've met in my life and the, and the Mavericks and the difference between the two. And, and it's almost like one is a, 
One is like an institutional leadership. They go in a box, they learn something, then they come out and then they're a manager and they oversee a team or something. (laughs) And at the end of the day, they leave. And then they're this different kind of person where this, I can see this maverick leader. They, they, they're not necessarily using anything special. They're just being who they are. And in, in them being who they are, if they're the type that, I don't know, is comfortable in their own skin and, and can empower other people just by accepting them and letting them grow, you have like a maverick leader. It's like organic versus inorganic or something. Yeah, but it is purposeful. So it's not an accident. So oh, you okay. are doing it purposefully. And you are a... So the way I look at maverick leadership is this. It is not the coat or the suit you put on in the morning. It's the underwear that you have on when you get on it. It is integral. So you're a maverick leader at work. You're a maverick leader at home. So this is about what you do. And you are aware that you are a role model or you should be a role model. Because whatever we do, we if we're a parent, we demonstrate to the children how a parent is, mother, father. If you are a manager, you demonstrate how the manager is. So you're very much aware that as you go about your business, you are impacting on the world. So it's a purposeful thing. And when I say it's purposeful, it doesn't mean that you're constantly thinking, oh, everyone's watching. It's not like that. It's just that you are aware that everything has consequences, good and bad. So you take things carefully, even when you are taking risks. (laughs) Yeah. Or even in the mundane right like yeah i'll go into a gas station and i'll figure out the most efficient way to go about everything and how to make other people feel accepted how to make other people smile more and i'm just getting gas like there's no there's very rarely autopilot in my life i'm you know i'm i'm always trying to do something to make other people kind of enhance the moment, I guess. Whereas I think a lot of people, it's just getting gas. It's like, oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. The Go. difference is, so the difference is you are pathologically curious about the world around you. Yes. So whilst you're getting the gas or petrol, as we would say in the UK, petrol. you're thinking, what, what would happen if, you know, I spilt this and someone's got a cigarette and they walk past. What would happen if, <laughs> or, you know, I walk into this room, where are the exits if, you know, you're constantly, what would happen if the sun didn't rise? You know, it's you're constantly, but it's not um, overthinking because it's, it's, it's just fun because we like to be challenged in yeah. all things. So it's fun to challenge. And the difference, the benefit is when things have happened, and it requires a quick and fast response. There you go. That ma- that leader was ready. Was ready because yeah, because they part thought through. So it's a much quicker. And so people, I often see people say, "Oh my gosh, my leaders, they think so fast." It's because they pre-thought through lots of different scenarios, and because it's automatic, it's you're not even aware you've done it it's become completely subconscious. So when somebody goes, oh my gosh, you know, the computer isn't working, which means we can't do this. At some point you would have thought, what would happen if? So it's just a quick recall and, you, and then an update with the current situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think sometimes what uh, Maverick leaders 
take our fun they have a lot of fun in their lives and they see things they're also very serious it's kind of weird it's kind of like seriously fun <laughs> so, which is kind of a bit weird so they find a lot of humor in a lot of things but they're also they can switch very fast from i'm just laughing my head off to there's an emergency there's yeah. no transition time it's just a complete switch do you have do you have that going on in, around your family and does that bother your spouse or does your spouse kind of feed off that and they're like yes 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 <laughs> they're also a maverick so it works out just yeah. fine. <laughs> good oh how is that two mavericks does that how does that work one's an introvert one's an extrovert so oh. it works really well okay okay that kind of reminds me of Helena and I, my, my spouse, she's uh, a maverick as well. And, but she's, um, doesn't like to socialize as much more. So she just likes to make sure she's in control of herself and, and a situation. And um, she's just constantly planning. Everything is very intentional. Yeah, but I think she maybe in that situation when there's an introvert and an extrovert, maybe they look to the extrovert a little bit more sometimes for for guidance. I don't know. I don't know. I recently um, had a podcast with an introverted maverick leader, and we were commenting on the fact that an introverted maverick is not the same as an introverted conformist. Yes. So it's more, agree. yeah, it's, it's so they'll still execute, they'll still speak up, they'll still do all these things. Um, it's the, and I asked her, what does she see is the major difference? And she said, introverted conformists are always apologizing for everything, where introverted mavericks aren't apologizing for everything. They own, you know, this is my opinion, this is what I'm doing, they own it. Where she was saying introverted conformists tend to like, I'm really sorry, but I really don't want to do that. Or an introverted maverick be like, no. Right. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I talk about it a little bit in my book, actually, The Maverick Paradox, The Secret Power Behind Successful Leaders. And then a little bit there in the book about an introverted maverick and saying it's relative to the intro- um, extroverted maverick, not saying it's an introverted person per se. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. It seems maverick leadership involves first conquering yourself. Am I correct in saying that? Oh, I love that. Yeah, it is because, because you are aware that because mavericks are highly influential without meaning to, without even thinking about it. So people take note. So if that's the case, then you and you have this opinion of doing no harm and work for the greater good, then you need to be careful. So if you are committed to doing something, you do it. Your word is your bond. Integrity is really important. So is reputation. And you can only do that if you master yourself. And I think all the maverick leaders that I have seen and worked with have all gone on self-discovery. You know, they hit a road. And then, so then they go and learn how to get around that. And that's from self-discovery. I mean, I can give an example for myself. When I was younger, I was definitely tactless. 
I had no real concept of being tactful. <laughs> and that was because my brutal honesty, you know, honesty is a high value that I have. And I thought at a young age that if he was honest, then that was good. Didn't realise that being brutally honest can be quite hurtful. So I, I learned how not to, to be able to be honest without hurting people. And that was a lot of self-discovery and trying so that I was comfortable that I could tell the truth um, in a way that enabled other people to, to act and to move and improve without hurting their feelings. Okay. Um, since ahead. you mentioned about when you were young, I was wondering what got you onto this path of teaching Maverick leadership? You know, I think part of it is being a maverick so I learned a lot from my uh, first role where I worked with a maverick leader and I learned to be more tactful I learned how to um, have impact I then went into HR and ended up working with individuals that were highly challenging which I totally understood and no one else could understand so they'd be like so and so they'd be like Raj is really challenging he's causing a lot of problems we don't know what to do with him but he's really good at his job and I'd go and observe or talk to the person. I go, oh, it's just this. Because I totally understood what, what was driving that individual. And over time, I decided that working in HR was something I didn't want to do anymore. I was a senior HR manager from the age of 24. So I'd done a lot of stuff in HR already and decided that I would work with organisations outside so that I can focus on leadership and Maverick leadership specifically. And Rush, what were you going to say? Well, is that when you just, I was actually going to ask the same exact question and you asked. <laughs> ah! So is that when you decided to write and start producing content? Or did you do that as you were in HR? No, I didn't. You know what? The thought, when I was in HR, the thought of working for myself seemed like a strange, you know, why would anybody be so foolish? That's, that's where I was at at that point. Oh. Um, and, then, and then when I came out um, of HR, so I went for myself, I ended up working with business owners and helping them to grow and develop their business. And that was kind of, I wanted to do something away from HR. Over time, I got back interested in the leadership side of things. So whilst I was writing articles, I had been in newspapers, um, trade magazines, I didn't write my book to many years afterwards. And that was because there are so many people were saying, you need to write a book about this stuff. <laughs> and also I wanted, this is the Maverick strategic thinking, I wanted to reposition what I wanted to do. So I wrote the book to get the ideas out there, but also as a business card for my consulting work. Mm -hmm. um, and that works really well. When you consult, um, you probably have stories and tales of when you were in HR. What, what were the experiences in a negative way? Like, have you experienced awful leadership and, and do you now use those as examples like because you were in that corporate world, right? You must have seen, it's not like if you saw, it's do you use those today? You know what? I guess so. I think 
maverick leaders are always thinking and even in the moment of seeing something that is wrong it's being stored away in your head for assessment later and so you're always pulling out the learning that. you know it, it, it's just like it's weird it's a subconscious thing you're not even you know actively meaning no. to do so yes but when you uh, when the situation has been dealt with and you, then you just automatically start reviewing stuff and it then gets um deposited in into the brain and it comes up i mean I, I think you're right i think there are times if i'm doing leadership training or something like that i might say yes this reminds me of a time when this happened but it's more of a case of the aggregate of the learning because I think the saddest yeah. one of the reasons I went into leadership because the saddest thing is is there are a lot of poor leaders you know I looked when I was writing the book I was thinking of what are the best leaders I've ever worked with or who are, who are my, my boss or something like that for templates and there were so few and when I think about hundreds and hundreds of people I've worked with there were so few that I thought you want you, you got it you're an excellent leader and then when I looked in my head as to what was common about amongst those they're all maverick leaders or how i define maverick they're all maverick leaders and i thought well this is the template for good leadership oh man i mean your story runs in parallel with mine in in several ways it's it's a little eerie but when what i think a negative experience I had in, on a team from a leader who was a mentor of mine and someone that I respected and still highly respect. Um, one of my biggest growth experiences was from his awful leadership. And it was like, <laughs> he was also teaching me maverick leadership and it was a duplicitous experience and it was very confusing because he would give me these resources about leadership and maverick leadership. And then on the same day, he would break those very rules. And I'd be like, Oh my God, this is driving me insane. And, um, I saw this, I mean, it was an amazing experience to see the examples going on in real time. And I needed that. I needed that to see what what real leadership was and what what bad leadership was. And I think one of the most painful things I've ever done is, you know, go to my mentor at the time and say, like, you and I literally cannot work together or else I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> That's maverick. You know what? You know what I think is really interesting. I remember now. Now you reminded me when I was younger in my first role, not with my first boss, but another boss. The manager was just so bad; it was just driving me crazy. Because very similar to yours, um, I don't think they understood how to be honest. They stole credit from other people. They did all the things you'd imagine to be wrong. And uh, there was this book, and I can't remember what it was called, but it was something like what to do when your manager's toxic or something like that. Mm. And basically it said, use them as a case study, oh. assess what they do and figure out um, what would you do instead of what was better. So that all of a sudden he became my experiment. So I was no longer having a bad time at work. 
Because ah. he was like he was like the experiment. I'd be like, oh, <laughs> and so so it was really it was a great way for me to endure that whilst I sorted myself out into something different. Because all of a sudden I was eager to go to work because I was learning so much. It, like he was the you know a hypothesis had been set. So then I started to see things as a, I used to like to set hypotheses. You know, something would come up and you'd be like. I wonder what would happen if X, Y, and Z. And then he would be like a lab rat. I would observe and watch and take notes. And so I learned a lot about, you know, one day when I'm a boss, I'm not going to do that um, from this particular person. And I think that mentality stayed with me. It's become part of just who I am now, I think. is just that I think, you know, it's just set the hypothesis, test it, get the learning, move on, um, Maybe that's what helps make Maverick leaders more resilient, mentally resilient, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think so. Um, What's a, sorry, Roger, for interrupting. No, um, what are common mistakes you see leaders making? One of the most common mistakes is they don't execute. So there's a lot of talking, a lot of strategy, but not actually executing. Or if they do execute, it doesn't solve the problem. So they're more excited to being seen to get something done rather than doing the thing that solves the problem. And also seeing the people that they work with as instruments to them achieving what they need to achieve as opposed to real life people. You know, the amount of, before COVID, when I used to do leadership training and I would say to leaders, even senior leaders, you know, you have to genuinely care about your staff because they'll know if you don't. And there would be always one or two people in the room of, say, 12 who would be like, but I'm at work. What does that, you know, I don't care if they going for a divorce or having a bad day. I just don't care. They're at work. You know, there would always be people in the room that would say it doesn't matter what's happening in someone's personal life. It's what they do at work that counts. And I think maybe COVID has made a difference. Now I think more people realise that we are blended individuals. You know, and you when you talk to the person at work, you're still talking to the person at home. They're just behaving slightly differently. Yeah, you're right. COVID really has brought that out um, because now you have these meetings with high-powered people and there's like a dog barking in the background. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, they're like, Benny, get out of here. I'm in a meeting. <laughs> It's like the CEO. And you know like, what? Ah. There was this. There was this clip. Uh, I can't remember if it was one of the. I saw it on YouTube. Whether it was one of those uh, UK TV stations or it was a US one, but I think it was a UK one where the person is talking to the interviewer, and then the kid comes in and does something, and then that person just turns around and just really goes for it, <laughs> and then the kid's like walks out and then they go blah 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 <laughs> everyone's like because <laughs> it just that person just didn't see what happened so it, it t- tells you so much like this is a normal behavior because it wasn't something they didn't apologize oh sorry my, kid came, sorry, <laughs> my temper it was just like <laughs> they're a monster and then well it breaks the fourth wall and to use um Shakespeare's kind of method of engaging with the audience the fourth wall is when like a movie when they talk to talk to the screen it it gives you a chance to have this 3d experience 
or for the experience of of the situation and the people in it and and i think that goes back to honesty i'm i'm still learning appropriate levels of honesty and expression <laughs> and i think we talked about that like on the last show that we did on your your show and and i've always thought it's like a little i don't know how to say this in a politically correct way i don't think this will be politically politically correct so i apologize but it's a little autistic of me like it, it's it's part of my I'm somewhere on the spectrum where I'm too, it's like, whoa, you don't even know this person and it can get awkward. And, and Helena will be like that, like I'll, I'll, I'll tell her later, like, I wonder why that person was so uncomfortable. And she's like, well, you were like in, interrogating their entire life and you literally just met them. And I'm like, <laughs> well, so, and it, it's like, what gets me about society and like, no one wants to talk about those major things like how much they make and like you're not allowed to say certain numbers that you make or you're not allowed to talk about certain things I don't know that I was even talking with my sister the other day and we were talking about my our, our salaries and I said my salary and she was like well you know you don't have to t- talk about that and I'm like whoa once I said the number like it changed everything I thought that was really weird I think that is weird i don't know i think i think there's a few things that are happening there i think one is expectations so you from what i know about you you're you're honest you say what you mean you're transparent so if you if you want to know something for a given reason you're happy to state what that is that's quite unusual most people when they ask questions like that there is a hidden agenda so the person that you speak to is replying as if you were somebody else, because that would be the normal thing. Um, so there can be big frustration, I find, with Mavericks when they're like, there is no hidden. And I have been accused of having a hidden agenda when it's like, I don't have hidden agendas. If I've got an agenda, I'll tell you it. <laughs> Nothing right. hidden, because that's not the Maverick way. Um, but it does seem a bit strange to some people. But also the curiosity that Mavericks have can take them in places that makes other people uncomfortable. Um, And I think that all Mavericks and Maverick leaders need to be aware of the level of relationship they have with people and the other person's comfort zone. So if you have a, so if you're in a room of Mavericks, the conversation can get quite deep quite quickly. Yes. And that's because Mavericks know if you ask a question, the other person doesn't want to answer, just want to answer it. (laughs) <laughs> it's like so you can ask what you like but if i don't want to answer it i'm not going to answer i'm not going to feel bad about not answering it mm-hmm. and if you're a maverick too you would just go oh you don't want to talk about that you might push with another question and then go okay fine and you'd leave it yeah. and no one's upset and no one's harmed and you know it's two adults having a conversation but that comes from a level of confidence um and a level of understanding yourself and how far you're prepared to go on something a lot of people don't have that so they can get quite intimidated by a maverick that's so the confidence of a maverick can be very intimidating to other people you're right you're absolutely right and that's the exact word that people use uh in that situation i someone at work actually said that i was intimidating and i was like i don't even know what that means i'm like the most open person 
that I could, that I know to be, I don't know why that would intimidate anyone, but, but you're right. It, it does. It's because your confidence, you know, I've, you know, lots of mavericks have that where people say they're really intimidating. And when you really dig deep into what is intimidating, it's like, why is Raj in- intimidating? It's well, he's always self-confident. He always, you know, understands himself really well. He's not frightened to speak. And I, like you, I don't understand why that's intimidating, but I accept that it is for some people, but I can't put myself into that mindset to recognise the intimidation, other than the fact that if you're an individual that sees that reflection on yourself, maybe that's intimidating. Like, I'm not that, so therefore they're thinking that. So I think sometimes people put thoughts into your brain that don't exist. And then mm. react to that. Mm, yes, yes, yes. I call that the social mirror. Well, no, S- Stephen Covey calls it the social mirror, but I le- I've learned that to be the social mirror where, where most of life is a projection. It has been a projection on us and we're acting out other people's insecurities, good and bad, I think, things come along with the social mirror. But that's that that's that identity part of of the the journey that we were talking about earlier. I think once you realize that you're not acting out your um, your will, you're acting out others, and you realize kind of you start to go into this internalization process of who you really are. I think that's <laughs> that's probably the key. That's probably the first step to the journey of self discovery is is the the social mirror i think it's got to be one of the first ones because we all realize that we're suffering at some point and the suffering is usually from years and years of built up layers of of social projection i think if it was just us the whole time you know it could be for other reasons but I don't know. Because a maverick leader will, will go, why did I react that way? Why did I get upset? when and, and would spend the time to reflect and figure out, why did I get upset when Raj asked that question? What does that mean for me? Was it the way he asked it? Was it the way I'm feeling? What's going? You know, they'll take time out to figure it out. There's almost a responsibility there, whereas most people don't. There's no, it's, 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 instead of that self-questioning it's it's the blaming it's you know they did that they did that it's their thing can't believe they did that yes yeah why did i do that so there's responsibility versus blaming that's right because it's like they made me feel like that whereas a maverick leader would go i felt like that why was it why was that the case you're not saying raj made me feel bad i felt bad when he said that why did i feel bad and I, when I was fault. younger, I could, I, I remember now being intimidated by other people when I was younger. And I remember what that was like. I think I was seeing their confidence or something or projecting their confidence. And um, I must, yeah, I wasn't fully identified with who I was. I was actually living a projection myself when I was younger. And I, I, I see now how you can be intimidated because essentially you're living a lie. Oh, 
I'm going to go away and think about that. I'm, that's interesting. You're pretending. And when you stop pretending, I mean, I, and this is said many different ways by many different people, right? And I saw it on Twitter the other day by a funny person that I follow. And they said, you know, as a joke, but it, or they were being cheeky. But I mean, it's, it's so profound when you stop caring about what other people think you're finally free. And they said oh, yeah. it in a, in a humorous way, but that's it. Like, that's the crux of the issue. Because you know what? I think the nuance there is maverick leaders, they care what people are saying about them, yes. but it's not affecting their self-identity. Mm-hmm. So I think often when I often think that conformists are looking at that statement as, self-identity and caring as the same you know if you're upset with me of course I care yeah but that would that wouldn't necessarily mean there's something wrong with me (laughs) there might be but it wouldn't be my first I wouldn't be like um if you think I'm stupid I must be stupid and then my self-esteem goes down oh my first reaction would be what did I do that made you, you know why would you think that you know, and I'd go from that, but it, my identity would still be intact. Yeah, yeah. I, I think for it's like there's you don't want to be a monster, you don't want to be narcissistic leader, and and confuse no. that with maverick leadership or good leadership. But I think for me, I, I break down life into experience, and I try not to use it as a collective all the time. But I do believe that that is true sometimes. So in that situation, if someone were to say, you know, that was really uh, stupid, Raj, I would look, I would chunk the experience into fragments and say, okay, somewhere along the way, let's say I did something stupid. Okay, so that needs to be corrected. But that doesn't go far enough to break down into my, you know, who I am as a person. I don't know. Maybe that's no. I, I I'm laughing because I so get that. It's that kind of. I think maverick leaders look at things first in the isolation. So they look at the incident in the yeah. isolation. When they've assessed that, then they will reflect back into other similar instances to see if it's common. So do you know what I mean? Is it a common thing, or is it just this one? So it's. It sounds like. We're really, really, really sort of structured. I, it sounds like a, it's only because I'm putting out the thought process that it sounds like it's a, a linear thing. It's not. It's an emergent thing that all happens in, in, in the moment, as it were. But it's when you, to think about it, you have to explain it in linear steps, I guess, for others to understand what I mean. But in that moment, but I think you get what I'm saying. When it happens, it's like, it's not with pen and paper and going well this happened then this happened then this happened yeah I think there's two things there I agree with that and then if you expand that I think I think you could make an argument to say that that maverick leadership is scalable I think it's is it teachable I don't know like that's a very Aristotle-esque question um (laughs) the answer is yes yeah Okay. Okay. Because everyone like that's, that's like Plato's entire work, like people asking Aristotle, can you teach justice and virtue and, and, and strength and courage and all this? 
Like, can you? It's about mastery, right? So you'll never be the master at it. But the point of mastery is to continue to persevere, constantly wanting to improve. Um, But you're never going to be, that's it. I've mastered maverick leadership because it's not a, it's not a set model. There are models within it, but it's not a, it's it's not a set model because you as an individual will always change. So your leadership is going to change. Yeah. And I think that's, that's that's the thing is that people what i've noticed one of the reasons i wrote the book was because leadership always have seemed to be the things you do to people so you want this so you do it this way and when you want them to do that you do it that way but it never seemed to look at the individual and the impact on the individual yes so that what's the you know and that doesn't make sense to me because i'm thinking from maverick leaders follow other leaders that they respect and trust so if you're not someone that can be trusted that's why you'll find the maverick leader really challenging because if they don't trust you, then they're not following you. Mm-hmm. End of story, <laughs> you know, and that, that comes down to you, not just your, uh, your character. So like, are you a trustworthy person, but also are you competent? Do you have a track record, you know, so can you be trusted to do the thing well as well? Um, so any kind of leadership philosophy that doesn't include what the individual leader is doing, doesn't make any sense to me how could it work you know what i found is that um it stands out you stand out too people start to behind the scenes they start to confide in you you know because you're doing things in in public meetings that they wish they could do or would have said um but they don't and they go along with it i think that's the conformist idea that we were talking about earlier versus you have to yeah go because you're gonna because you have to empower other people because i don't know if you've ever been that person who becomes the person that speaks the thing that nobody else will speak and then you then become to the manager if especially if they're not particularly that good as the challenging one yeah because you're always the one because even if you understand it you're speaking up for the one that doesn't yeah but they never they themselves never say anything so it becomes like you're the one who always has a problem you're the one who was challenging and that's not healthy for your career or for your own mental health so it's important to be that devil's advocate but i think it's if it's a case where you're always speaking up for that that particular person then you need to help that individual or, or make it very clear to them, you know, if you've got an issue with X, go speak to him yourself. Stop asking me to do it. Yeah, I mean, that that brings up um, flashes of images in my mind of, of that that experience on that team with the my mentor leader uh, who was also uh, uh, a monster. And, you know, and other people on the team outside of these meetings, you know, confiding in me and saying, oh, my God, you know, this is awful and everything. And then I finally did something about it. And everyone, you know, actually, you know, during our trials and investigations of what happened after I left the department, because um, no one leaves a monk department. That's just not what you do. Um they all like turned on me and they said, Oh no, everything's fine. He was really rough to work with and things like that. 
So I was like, okay, that's fine. And so I leave, uh, you know, knowing what they say in private conversations, right. And saying, you know, this is your time to tell the truth to, to his bosses and everything. This is, this is the chance. And so they folded and, um, you know, years later, uh, some of them came up to me and they'd say, you know, you really made the right move there. And, and we all caved, you know, under the pressure <clears throat> and, uh, it drove one, one person to leave the entire organization instead of just leaving departments. And I don't know, it's like, it doesn't bother me. You know, people can do what they want. People can suffer as long as they want. Fine with me. Uh, but when a present, when an opportunity presents itself, you should act on it and be honest or else what's the point? You're going to like live in suffering and hate what, who you are and what you do. So that was, that was a big one for me. I think that was the biggest experience the uh, professional experience in my life that really taught me a lot about people mindset teams you know what I think maverick leaders need to practice discernment as often as possible and the reason I say that is because maverick leaders are really good at seeing what's going on see the problems see the solutions but sometimes it's not right to say um, and sometimes it's not right or appropriate to point it out and I think it takes discernment to know when when do you put your foot down let's, yeah. let's discount any i'm not talking about anything that's illegal or anything like that but it's more of a case of maverick leaders observe what's going on so you can be in an office and you can see that there's an issue with a particular person and you may be able to intuit what that is and say it's a personal one that doesn't necessarily mean you go up to them and specifically tell them what you know the problem is right, <laughs> right. because that's not the right way to do it especially with people that you're not necessarily that close with. You might want to coax it out of them by throwing them something, you know, or, you know, how was your, you know, did you sleep well last night? You know, maybe you throw things out so they can choose to tell you. And I think that was one of the things I learned uh, from an early age, because I would, I would share what I could see or intuit with people before they were ready to hear it. And it took a long time for me to realise how disconcerting that is for people. So if you see something about an individual that they haven't seen about themselves yet, to be told by somebody else, the very core of that individual, of yourself, it can be very difficult to hear. Mm -hmm. But it was part, for me, it was part of that kind of, just being honest so they ask you a question you go well it's because of da, 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 da. And they're like how did you know that and it's because you observe various you know things that you've seen heard conversations you've seen looks between people you, you know you so you've, you've come to a conclusion that invariably is correct but it doesn't mean you should share it and I yeah. think that's one thing that all oh, my just need to learn yeah no uh there's so many things there um that are profound that I hope people listening, this is like, you have to go back and listen to it over and over again. It's the same <laughs> way with yogic teachings. You could, you can have an answer for something and, and you know how uh, people can reach a level of contentment. Um, but 
even if they heard it with a methodical step-by-step process, it doesn't mean that, that they're ready to follow it. And, and that's so true, even more so about people's um, faults or just simple things, behavioral corrections and things like that. Yeah, because people can hate you for telling the truth. Oh, yes. So you, you think you're helping, especially when they've said, just tell me what you think. So, a, you know, a maverick that hasn't learned discernment will do just that. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's welcome. Yeah. You know, I gave an example years ago. I used to do this, this uh, we used to train on trusted leadership. And one of the things I, I got a laugh was like when when I was younger and some if somebody said, does my bum look big in this? And they thought that they did, I would say, yeah. <laughs> um, because if that was me and I was asking you, and you said, yeah, and I'm like, I'll just go change. I would yeah. be upset because well, I asked you a question, you, you tell me the answer, <laughs> so I'll go sort that out, yeah. Um, but what I didn't realise, that the question I was being asked was, tell, can you tell me I look great because I need the self-confidence boost? I heard it in a very literal, do I look good in this? No, it's not your colour. <laughs> and it wasn't meant with any, any harm. It was, I was trying to be helpful. Mm-hmm. I didn't know at the time, you know, 15 or something, that that's not what the question was. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think that I see a lot of that kind of contextual language issues uh, with mavericks when they're trying to become good maverick leaders, that they're, they're trying to be honest and open and vulnerable, but it's misread because people don't know the intention of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and what gets me is the the nature or the distinction between the that personal side of honesty and the professional side and i'm always i'm still like to this day um i always find it amusing i i I find it amusing now as i get older and not frustrating but i think it's amusing (laughs) uh, how even in a professional setting people have to walk around on eggshells and like i was in a meeting what was it? Um, maybe it was only a few months ago, but we were putting on some kind of event and the, you know, when you're building a house, there's a disconnect between the architect and uh, the actual people nailing in the wood. And uh, the architect may have ideas, but there's a real world um, actual consequence to those um, ideas. And sometimes they don't always meet. And honesty between the two parties builds the best house. And the people who want this event going on have this, there are two different meetings, right? Like the people building the event are not in the meeting where the event is architecture is designed. So they don't, the architects uh, don't get reality checks, right? So they're allowed for their whimsies to just go and take them to this most beautiful (laughs) event. And while the, while the actual builders are like, yeah, that's impossible to do. And so it comes back to the builders and, and I hear, you know, the requirements for the meeting. And it was something like an, an, an enormous amount of uh, breakout rooms of a meeting, right? Because it's a virtual meeting that's supposed to mimic a real conference where there's 
the plenary session and then there's the breakouts and everyone, you know, they put the walls up or you go into a different room or whatever. So digitally, we have to like put up different rooms as breakouts. And there was some astronomical number of breakouts that I had never heard of. <laughs> and when I heard the number from one of the team leaders, I was like, well, that's stupid. And no one said anything. And in fact, they all, everyone, they moved to another topic or they, they skipped over what I said, <laughs> what I said. And, uh, and then I typed in the meeting chat. That's stupid. <laughs> and someone was like, thanks Raj. And, and, and. You know, they heard you're stupid. You know, they heard you're stupid when you typed that stupid. And I was like, and I think towards the end of the meeting, I let it go for a while. And I was like, does anyone realize that that is like the worst idea I've ever heard? Because that is going to be an awful, awful experience. And it's not logically possible. And people were like, well, we have to try. Right. And it's like, okay, I can kind of appreciate that, that attitude. But as Stephen Covey says that you have the wrong map. In other words, if you're trying to go to Chicago, but you have a map of New York, no matter how determined you are, <laughs> you ain't going to make to that in any that cafe in Chicago because you're in New York. And it's a, it's not a wrong paradigm. It's not a wrong character trait. It's the entire map is incorrect. And I'm seeing this happen in real time. And I give I say my piece. And uh, I talk to individual members after the meeting as appropriately as possible. Hey, no one's ever done that many breakout rooms. It's not only is it unnecessary, but here's a better solution. And it actually does the same exact thing. And they're like, well, thank you for that idea. You know, it was a good idea. They, they went to another leadership meeting, pitched a slightly different version, and they reduced the number by a comical amount. And it was still inordinate and, and uh, superfluous. And so we, sure enough, we get to the event, we, uh, everyone scrambles to do the breakouts and they just fall apart in front of everyone's face. And it's like, wow, this is really <laughs> stupid. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm just like, ho-hum, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? It's too bad. No one said this earlier. And, and sure enough, afterwards in the, uh, in the what went wrong <laughs> type thing, someone else says, well, I think we had too many rooms, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> I don't know. That goes back to what I was saying earlier about the execution and what goes wrong is they're keen to implement a solution without checking if it would actually work or not. Yeah. And I think it's it's also contextualized, isn't it? In how you because I think that's the one of the I said that in my book it's one of the things that surprises Mavericks the most that conformists care about how something is said more than the message that's being said. Absolutely, that, that was absolutely you've the whole upset thing. the person, so they cannot hear what you're saying now. Yeah, like we can't go back to leadership and say we can't do that. It's like, but that is in everyone's best interest because all they want to know is what we can do. Not what we, you know, can't do, but but can try. I mean, that's dangerous when you're in a professional uh, public facing event. And I don't think there's anything wrong with breaking boundaries. Right. Because then 
if we always said, well, we can't do that, we wouldn't accomplish putting people in space and all that. But uh, there has to be uh, a little bit of logic to a, a, a whimsical idea, I think, or at least a methodical process. And in this, it was just like, let's just shoot in the dark and try to make everyone happy. And that was Did you- very... Did you switch off in the meeting? So once once yeah. it was clear, then we go, yeah, exactly. I knew that. Yeah, I, I turn off uh, and I'm just like, <laughs> everyone here is just blinded by titles and uh, expectations. And they're not really listening. Um, they're not acting professionally. Because here's the thing with me, with, with architects and builders. The architects need to trust the builder to be professional and to me being professional means setting limitations and 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 setting practical expectations and to say you know that you can do anything the architect wants is uh the most unprofessional thing because it leads to false senses of security and 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 uh eventually when that trust is broken you have to rebuild and it's like we could have avoided this whole thing by being honest and saying it's just not possible right now with the amount of people that we have. If we had more people, yes, we could do this. We don't. We won't have it. So what they're trying to get four or five people to, to manage 30 places. And it's like it's just not possible real time. You'd have to pause, you know, six rooms for a rotation to happen or something and um, yes, when I when I see when I see something really dumb, I turn off, I back out, I distance, and I isolate. And I'm just like, I I I will not aid in the stupidity that is going on right now. <laughs> I will bask in my own idea no <laughs> i'm very open at the same time right because i'll turn around and say okay you know i've said my piece let's do your plan and and let's do it to the best of our capacity and um but you know i know it's not gonna work and i've yet to see um a maverick socialized maverick who continues to be engaged in something when it clearly isn't going to work. It's yeah. a, you know, so after they've done everything, you know, thought it through, come up with other solutions, try to persuade people, but like in your situation, once it's, this is what we're doing and you know, it's not going to work. I, every moment that I've ever seen disengages at that point because it's, it's a waste of time and their effort. And I think that good leaders whenever they see, especially a passionate person um, disengaged so completely, it should be a red flag. Because yeah. the disengagement, it's not like they're having a strop and they're upset and they're like, we're not doing it anymore. It's, it's not from that. It's like, this isn't going to work. This is, so it's no point, no more point. I will go along because I have to, but my brain is now disengaged. I'm working on some other problem. And I think that should be a red flag because when your most passionate people go quiet, you must ask why. Yeah. Why, why is that happening? Yeah, that happened to, 
So I was in a leadership role uh, recently, and I and I saw that, and I saw this um, this brilliant individual who knows more than anyone else and should be getting paid more than anyone else and uh, does most of the work, but gets very little credit. And he knows that, uh, but that's his job um, as a web architect. And I I noticed there was uh, a bit of that standoffishness, quietness. And in in a private meeting, I'm, I expressed everything I just said to you. I just, you know, I said that. And it was like, I need, you know, you, I'm, I'm just the middleman here. You're more important than I am. So if you don't say anything, I'm extremely worried. And all of a sudden <clears throat> out came all the insecurities and things that no one could ever say in a public meeting. So then I had the chance to sweep in, swoop in and, and empower the individual for, to remove the insecurities so that the truth could be revealed in that, in that what was really going on in, in, in behind this one project. And um, I don't know, I, I, those meetings need to happen. If they don't happen, the team, a team cannot really advance. And, and even if you do advance uh, on the backs of like insecure and, and, and depressed web architects, uh, it's not, it's not healthy. I don't know. It's not good. It's, it's, it's against the tenant of do no harm, right? It's yeah. Good. And, and I think this is important for aspiring leaders. I think this is important. This kind of conversation is important for people who want to just be good people, do good things, but also uh, rise up a corporate ladder or, or get a promotion or advance your position. I think these are the kind of things that you need to study and practice, but not everyone will, will care about this kind of leadership. I think a lot of people will go to work, they clock in. And as my mentor used to say, it's the clock in clock out mentality. So as soon as I say something on, on a podcast, I realize that most people, it's probably too much. It's probably too much out of their way on their day to day. They got way too many things to worry about, but I don't know. Those are the I things that I think about. Interesting enough, I was speaking to somebody yesterday who heard your show on my radio show, and they said, "Who is this guy? I could listen to him for years." <laughs> so you must be saying something right because it literally it was yesterday they were saying, "I love that show. This guy really understands how the world works." So, oh wow, well that is that's wonderful. Um, I did. So how are you on time? Probably would need to be wrapping up soon. All right, all right, all right. Let's not cover what I was going to go into next. Let's do another, we'll, we'll do another show at another time. And I wanted to go into kind of what you touched on earlier 
and dive into overthinking versus mental mastery and data collection, subconscious mastery, and how that in, how that goes into, I think data collection is a fascinating subject I'd like to go into, and, and specifically the collection of data via um, social media, the internet, um, treating your brain like a computer and not being overwhelmed by overthinking and that there is no limit to overthinking. But I want I do want to go into that. Wow, that's deep. That will be an interesting conversation. I do think we need the time for that, yeah. <laughs> so I've been thinking about that for about four years now, um, almost every day. And I'm formulating wow. some kind of idea. I mean, I just, I see self-mastery as this, this human uh, computer type simulation where um, I can juggle everything. And that's a poor word. Like I can receive all data and process it, categorize it and input and, and output appropriately. And there is not, there is not, you know, a situation where there's too much data. And I'm wondering if that's possible, but at the same time, I know it's not hundred percent possible because there has to be rest. There has to be recovery. There has to be energy management, but at the same time, that is a part of the data collection anyway. Um, Cause that's like another hour and a half, maybe. So <laughs> uh, Judith Germain, that's how you say your last name, right? Yeah, it is. Jermaine. Yeah. Um, where, where does that last name come from? Is Jermaine? It's French. Germain. Ah! <laughs> I like that. So where do people find you and all that good stuff? Okay, so you can find the website, which is maverickparadox.co uk you can find me on linkedin if you're interested in reading articles and as you know you've written uh, for the magazine you can find the maverick paradox magazine which is at the maverickparadox.com good good and we're all we're going to put that in the show notes for people well i want to thank uh thank judith for coming on the show thank rokas for uh being here and, and keeping everything together and listeners thank you i think that's a good outro for now and and we'll see everyone we don't have any what are we going to do next week rokas uh, i've emailed some people we'll see oh yeah maybe we'll have uh, a conversation with those other folks <laughs> all right thank you judith it was nice to meet oh, you and, and you too thank you all right bye folks <laughs>